you are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and mysterious glowing briefcases. This is Season 1, Episode 3, MacGuffins. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hey, Carrie. Uh, So we are doing this first season of our show, and we're talking about these larger tropes that happen in fantasy and science fiction. And today we're going to talk about MacGuffins, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Carrie, uh, you've recently had uh, some big changes in life, huh? I did. I recently started a new job as priest in charge at Trinity Episcopal Church in Collinsville, Connecticut. I'm really excited. It's my first time working as solo clergy and with a great bunch of people. I'm very tired. There's a lot of information uh, to discern from uh, this community, but it, my first Sunday went great. I used a Harry Potter illustration in my sermon and nobody left, not even the eight o'clockers. They didn't leave? They did not leave. They did listened. anybody get the reference? There was some nodding. All right, because I I did Mr. Miyagi's uh, healing gesture where he slaps his hands together and rubs them. Oh, no. My sermon. And... Uh, were you preaching on Luke? Yeah. Ah, okay. Luke and healing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had a couple of, of Gen Xers chuckle. Great. Uh, That's the most we can hope for is, is a <laughs> chuckle. Mine was about the persistent call of God and how it's like Harry's invitation to Hogwarts since I was preaching on Jeremiah. Yeah, and that's what we talked about last uh, time on our podcast and Harry Potter chapters one through three. Um, very cool. Well, I'm so glad that you've started your new job and many blessings on your first couple of months. Thank you. So our liturgy, uh, our ritual of this podcast is to start with our quotations. Our first one is from Matthew six nineteen to 21. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And our nerdy quote is from Guardians of the Galaxy. When Peter Quill is reflecting on the orb, he says, This orb has a real shiny blue suitcase, Ark of the Covenant, Maltese Falcon sort of a vibe. So that orb is a MacGuffin, and that's what we're going to talk about right when we come back. Adam, when did you first learn about MacGuffins? You know, I can't even remember when the term entered my consciousness. It's been years and years since I first said that word or read it. Uh, my guess is that I saw it on tvtropes.org years ago when I was just surfing the internet. But the term has a much older uh, genesis than tvtropes.org, of course. It predates the internet? It does, as many things do. What? Uh, yeah, TV Tropes defines it as a term for a motivating element in a story that is used to drive the plot. It serves no other purpose. And it actually comes from Alfred Hitchcock, uh, popularized by Alfred Hitchcock. Not sure if he's actually the one who uh, made up the term MacGuffin. But he asked two questions. Is the nature of the item in question interchangeable? And is the nature of the item irrelevant to the plot? And if the answer is yes to both of those questions, you have a true MacGuffin. As Peter Quill says, you know, the the Maltese Falcon or the the, the shiny 
briefcase. The shiny briefcase, like in Pulp, pulp Fiction when they're fighting over what looks like absolutely nothing. But we're going to expand the definition of MacGuffin a little bit today for this discussion. So why don't you tell us about that? So when we are thinking about MacGuffins, all the examples we are coming up with are don't quite meet those two standards of interchangeable and irrelevant. We were thinking about some things in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Hallows and the Horcruxes in Harry Potter, the Death Star plans, and all of those are important in some way. But the way I started to think about MacGuffins is that they take on a greater weight than the object may merit, if that makes sense. They are a motivation for plot development, for character development, and they, the weight of the MacGuffin actually eclipses the original use of the object. Yeah, so the MacGuffin can spur the plot of something. We need to go find this. We need to go retrieve it before somebody else does. We need to protect it. Uh, all of these things can help start a plot. And then sometimes the MacGuffin then goes away and it is it matters not at all for the rest of the content. But in other times, it does grow into a larger thing. Um, and that's those are the ones that we really want to focus on because there's not much to say about MacGuffins that are true MacGuffins in the Hitchcockian sense of the word. Right. They're pretty, they're by nature intriguing, but ultimately boring. Is Hitchcockian a word? I think it is now. Excellent. And there, I've noticed when I was doing this research that they're so often in the title of the thing. Blank and the blank with blank, the first blank being the main character and blank, second blank being the MacGuffin. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, Indiana Jones and the whatever. Kingdom of the Crystal Kingdom Skull. The Crystal Skull. That's people. probably the biggest MacGuffin in Indiana Jones. Full disclosure, I refused to see that movie and I still haven't, although I did know people who tried out to be extras for it when it was filmed in New Haven. Oh, is it, was it filmed in New Haven? That's cool. Mm -hmm. And people went down and waited in line and none of them made it, so I didn't see it. Thank goodness. Uh, in in history, that we see some MacGuffins in Greek mythology. Uh, the most common example is the Golden Fleece in the Tale of Jason and the Argonauts. Well, then we also see the MacGuffin very much in the Holy Grail narratives that are such a key part of Arthurian romance and then get later re uh, revised in Indiana Jones movies. The Grail is important, but ultimately it's a way of exploring the adventures of the Knights of the Round Table and their and their quests. They mock that trope in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where they go to the castle Anthrax and they've lit the Grail-shaped beacon. And then, of course, in the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, do they actually find the Grail? No, they <laughs> they get arrested by the police because they're basically cosplaying in the forest. My God, I forgot about the end of that movie. <laughs> it's really dumb. Oh. Uh, but that shows the MacGuffin as like the true MacGuffin, which is, well, we're not really going to find what we're looking for. It's really not about that. It's um, not about that at all. And But again, going back to the motivating of the plot thing, uh, let's talk about the Death Star plans in sure. Star Wars. So the very beginning of the original Star Wars movie, we see Princess Leia bending down and putting something inside of R2-D2. We don't know what it is. It's a disc of some sort. And in 1977, discs were a lot bigger Mm -hmm. than they are now so it looked like a really futuristic looking little thing and then over the course of the movie we start to understand what you know r2 has inside of him uh with princess leia talking to obi-wan kenobi through the hollow projection and then we get by the end we know that it's the death star plans and 
um, they are used to uh, find that weak point in the Death Star. So that's kind of an example of a MacGuffin that starts off fairly mysterious and maybe could be insignificant, but then grows in significance, becomes a key plot point. And I'm really interested in the Death Star plans as a MacGuffin because of how they were recontextualized in the movie Rogue One. That's right. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about that since I don't have that movie memorized yet. Uh, In Rogue One, we discover why the Death Star was so easy, quote unquote, easy to blow up. It's because the, uh, um, the flaw in the Death Star was put there by Galen Erso as his ultimate revenge uh, against the Empire who had stolen him from his family and killed his wife. He names the plans, the file for the plans, Stardust, which is the nickname that he had for his daughter, Jin. Mm. And so when Jin finally makes it to Scarif to the archive and she and Cassie and Andor are in there looking for what file the plans were on, they're scanned through, scanned through, scanned through, and they find a file called Stardust. And Jin knows immediately that that's the file that they need to take out of the archive. So it links her back to her father who has just died in her arms. And it shows that her relationship with him, which she had thought completely gone, was really there all along, even though they weren't together. He was always thinking about her. Everything he was doing was to make the galaxy a safer place for her. And in the end, by naming the plans Stardust, we see uh, kind of a proxy reconciliation between daughter and father. I actually teared up the first time I saw Rogue One and the the name of the plans uh, hit me. And of I course. thought, oh my gosh, that is so beautiful. Well, that's a case of the object itself taking on so much more of a greater emotional weight than just these are some architectural plans with a flaw hidden in them. I mean, that's what they are in their essence, but there's so much more to them in the plot. So many people die to get those plans off of Scarif. Mm-hmm. A chunk of rebel pilots uh, huge starships that get uh, blown up. And then, of course, the Death Star destroys Scarif, uh, or at least the um, that part of Scarif. Uh, and, and so we see how important these plans are to the Empire and also to the Rebel Alliance. And at the same time, what we're really privy to is how important they are specifically to Jin. Uh, and then they are transmitted to the ship and they end up finally in Princess Leia's hand, and that's when they take on their next, the next leg of their journey as this special kind of MacGuffin. It's like a, it's like a relay race. They're handing off the baton from Jin and the crew of Rogue One to Leia to R2-D2 and onwards all the way down to the hands of the alien. Another wonderful MacGuffin that is also about a relationship more than it is about an object is the Holy Grail, specifically in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's right. So it starts off, they are purposely taking this well-known object and becomes a motivating factor for Indy's reunion with his father. They've been estranged for a long time, right? It's been a while since I've seen that film. And it ultimately, the test, the the test of the film in the end is, does he, does Indiana let the grail drop or does he keep it? And he lets it go at the urging of his father. So, yeah, the scene is set up where India is holding Ilsa's hand. She's reaching for the grail. He says, I can't hold on to you. 
and then she keeps reaching and falls. And then Indy is in the same exact position. Sean Connery grabs his hand and he's reaching for it. And then Henry Jones, who has been searching for this girl his entire life, mm. says, Indiana, let it go. And in that moment, he, re- he realizes that there are way more important things, that even though this has been his life quest. Indy looks up at his father and sees the love that his father has for him and that it is more important than the grail. And that's when he reaches up and grabs his hand and they pull him out. It's an incredibly powerful scene. I've actually preached on that scene before. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link to that scene in the, the, the notes for this, this uh, episode. So everyone can watch it and cry along everybody with can, me. Everybody can read my sermon and, <laughs> and cry. Um, and, and so I think a lot of MacGuffins end up having these emotional resonances when they are, when they aren't just the, the object that can be discarded. Um, and it's interesting because there are true MacGuffins in Indiana Jones. The, the, the little fertility head at the beginning oh, of, yeah. of the Lost Ark is just a MacGuffin. The cross of Coronado at the beginning of Last Crusade, just a MacGuffin. But then when we get to the main quests in Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant, the Last Crusade, with the Holy Grail, that's when we get these things that are a little bit more than just uh, true MacGuffins. The Deathly Hallows in Harry Potter also are uh, about relationships once we get right down to it. And even in the debate about which ones are we going to find, Horcruxes or Hallows, there is uh, relationships being tested through that. And I feel like there might be a question in the books of if you searches for the hallows, those are it's more of a personal quest and more of a way of increasing his power and potentially his connection to his family versus looking for the horcruxes, which are purely designed to slowly weaken Voldemort, these dueling sets of MacGuffins in a way, that he ends up choosing to go for the horcruxes. And then in doing so, does in fact connect with his family and become more powerful by tapping into those hallows. The interesting thing is he actually has two of the hallows from the very beginning of the book. Yeah, very subtly inserted. Is in the snitch, and he already has the invisible cloak. cloak. We just don't know that that's a hallow at the beginning of the story. Right. We don't know that he's master of the third hallow either. Right, yeah. So in essence, Harry already is in control of all three hallows from the beginning of the story, and it's really a project of discovering that he has power over these things over the course of the tale. Mm. Um, and the Horcruxes, on the other hand, they have to search for, and he doesn't, he doesn't have control over those, not even the one that's him. Right. right? They, they're, they're wild and they kind of take over. Or is it, and I feel like he needs to surrender the Hallows in order to fight the Horcruxes, but he cannot surrender to the Horcruxes. He needs to, well, no, he does. He surrenders himself to being killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very complex <laughs> it's a very complex plot in the end when he goes to the forest and he has the snitch and he, he you know he puts it to his mouth and it opens and reveals the resurrection stone what does the stone show him but the people mm. who he is closest to who have died through this cloud of witnesses as you if you will to use a biblical term uh and they through their love for him, allow him to continue on in his quest. And I guess if if we think about what purpose the Hallows and the Horcruxes serve, specifically the Hallows, 
they are a way of investigating Harry's connection to this larger wizarding family, the Peverells, and also Dumbledore's past as a seeker of the Hallows. So in that way, they do take on a narrative weight that is greater than just the fact that they're objects of power. They become this way of investigating deeper, kind of like Rosebud and Citizen Kane is a way of investigating Kane's life. In the Deathly Hallows, the Hallows become a way for Harry to learn more about Dumbledore. And I think that in that case, they do take on this MacGuffin-y way of, of taking on more weight than they really are worth, hmm. as cool as they are on their own. So Harry uses the Hallows to learn more about Dumbledore and learns uses the Horcruxes to learn more about Voldemort. That's, yeah, that's exactly it, I think. They take on this extreme, um, just a lot of narrative weight is carried on those on those objects. And then you have Ron and Hermione and Harry who argue throughout the book about what to do. Mm. You know, which, what, what, what is our, what values are we going after here? Are we going to try to continue to weaken Voldemort or are we going to go find the things that are going to give us more power in order to fight Voldemort? They end up being kind of two sides of the same coin, but mm. that drives a lot of the narrative of the story. And if you think about the role that the Locket Horcrux plays on them, it stresses tensions that have been there since book one with mm. Ron wearing the Horcrux and having him ultimately abandon the group. His loyalty has been tested in, throughout the books, particularly in book four, it seems. Um, and the Horcrux is a motivating factor for his eventual abandonment of the, of the group. And I think that in that way, it functions as this plot motivator. And when Ron leaves, he, he immediately wants to return and can't because of the enchantments. And then his, his own quest from then on is about re reconnecting with Harry and Hermione, but he can't really do it until that locket is destroyed, until mm -hmm. uh, his own uh, envy or his own, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's not- Jealous, it's like a jealous- it, well, it's, well, it's jealousy, but it's also like his own, like lack of self-esteem. Oh yeah, absolutely. His yeah. youngest son mentality. Yeah, and he's not the youngest youngest. He's the youngest yeah, son. Least loved of a woman who wanted a daughter. Oh, wow, that. that's good quoting right there. I don't, that might be not specifically, but there, yeah, he's very self-conscious of, of his position. His best friend is a famous guy. Ron immediately <laughs> understands that he made the wrong choice and wants to return to the group. Mm -hmm. And so we see here through the concept, through this tro these tropes of MacGuffins taking on greater narrative weight, uh, we start to see how characters derive their values from them. Hmm. They're in trying to obtain them or by letting them go, a la Indy in, with the Holy Grail. So are we trying to grasp at something or are we trying to let it go? These are two different types of MacGuffins. When we, when we bring this more into the life of faith, we can see this, these two different things happening. Uh, I, when I think of MacGuffins, I think of uh, the concept of what are we chasing after? Mm -hmm. what is that thing what is what is the dollar signs or what is the the fame or what is the what is the thing that we're going after it's very much reminiscent of the the devil tempting jesus in the wilderness and showing him all the things he could be chasing after exactly and jesus continues to say no that's not what i'm chasing no that's not what i'm chasing no that's not what i'm chasing i don't need to chase anything because i know who i am 
but we def don't necessarily know who we are. And so we tend to chase things over the course of our lifetimes. And some of them are just MacGuffins. Some of them are just interchangeable, irrelevant things that we think we need mm -hmm. because the marketing department tells us that we need it. What are we seeking? And that's the question of faith. So I think, faith, yeah, so the world, as we might broadly generalize it and perhaps polarize it from the life of faith, would say you need to seek after approval of your peers, material wealth and comfort, and any other sort of more short-term things, whereas I feel like the answer of faith would be you must seek after God, ultimately, and that leads to loving relationships, a life of service, um, community, things that are more nourishing in the long term. Mm -hmm. Working for justice and peace. Uh, also, it, engaging in life-giving relationships, which are uh, part of the love of God. And these are all things that uh, we chase after. And when we when we uh, come into contact with something that is truly life-giving, we realize how many of the things that we were chasing after were death-dealing, that were taking away from our lives. I mean, I felt that way when I was addicted to World of Warcraft. I started playing World of Warcraft right after I went through a really bad breakup, and it was sort of the thing to do so I wouldn't think about the breakup. Mm -hmm. I played it for about two years pretty a lot, like exactly. a lot, a lot. Uh, and then um, when I finally gave it up, I did it by accident. How so? I got the flu, and it was the week before Easter. And uh, I, it was the last year of my of seminary, and I got the flu, and I was in the middle of a raid when the flu hit me, and I said, hey, guys, I got to go. I'm about to throw up. I shut the computer, went and, you know, mm -hmm. threw up. And then I was sick for like five days. And at the end of the five days, I looked at my computer and I said, I don't think I'm going to play that anymore. You went kind of cold turkey and realized you didn't need it. Accidentally cold turkey. And, and, and originally it was because I was, it was a defense mechanism trying to get over this thing. But then it just became what I did. And by the time I finally quit by accident, I'm pretty sure God was just like, okay, Adam is never going to quit this game unless something bad happens. <laughs> so, uh, but after that, then perhaps I can start having better relationships, finding uh, other ways to uh, not just distract myself, but to gain uh, uh, a different kind of health. Now, everything about World of Warcraft isn't bad, but there were some good stuff too. But overall, it was an addiction. I, I have a similar experience. Um, when I was in seminary, I read a lot. I've always been a big reader from the time before I could even read, I wanted to read. And so I read like most people, I don't know, do other activities. Um, and a lot of my seminary classmates were always really impressed with my ability to read even when we were heavily into school. And I'm sorry to realize maybe my reading is actually not a good thing. We think of it as a wholesome activity, just like you said, World of Warcraft isn't inherently bad. Reading we think of as an inherent good, but I was using it to distract myself, to shut down, to fill my brain with other plots and narratives and characters and noise to avoid real life in a lot of ways. Um, and I realized this when I went on retreat and I forgot to bring my fun book and the sense of stomach dropping panic I felt about not having anything to read, even though I was in a monastery where there's plenty of things to read. I was terrifying. And I realized, oh crap, I've been using this as I've been seeking after this 
uh, distraction, this uh, hiding from the real world. And now all I'm left with is my thoughts and God and these monks <laughs> who were very great. Hmm. And I was, I was seeking after, I think, some, some kind of distraction, but uh, it was ultimately taking me away from what I needed to look at. It's interesting when we talk about MacGuffins, how a true MacGuffin, that's the interchangeable, irrelevant thing to the plot, tends to go away as the story picks up. Mm-hmm. It was necessary to, to start the story, to get the action going, but then it kind of goes away. Whereas these things that we've been talking about end up morphing and changing over the course of a story to become more important. And then they're either embraced or let go, depending on the needs of the character's development. And mm-hmm. I think in our lives, we have the same type of thing, uh, especially as we interact with our faith and with following Jesus, uh, seeking after those higher goods and discovering what truly is life-giving. Uh, we then are able to let go of those other things that were more MacGuffin-like. I guess we'll finish our discussion of MacGuffins by using the Infinity Stones to talk about what we were just talking about as far as chasing after things because the Infinity Stones in the Marvel Cinematic Universe begin as these smaller items within individual movies. So we have the Tesseract, which is the space stone in uh, Captain America, the first Avenger. And then again, in the first Avengers movie, we have uh, the Power Stone in Guardians of the Galaxy, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, We have the Time Stone in Doctor Strange, uh, we have the Mind Stone in, uh, Aven- in Loki's staff, is where the Mind Stone originally is. Um, and then we have the uh, Reality Stone, which comes out in Thor The Dark World, which is the second Thor movie. And it's Wasn't like, very good. not great. No. Uh, but it ends up being the most important Thor movie for an endgame. Go figure. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, the Soul Stone, which we don't get until Infinity War. It's not even there. Um, and each one of these is is important to the plots, but they're not necessarily things that uh, grow and get bigger and bigger over the course of their stories until we st- until we get to Infinity War and Endgame. And it's in Infinity War when Thanos is trying to gather them all that we see their true power uh, as he's gaining more and more of them. And in the end, with the snap, we see their what he can do. But what's really important is then at the beginning of Endgame. Spoiler alert for Endgame, by the way. Stop listening if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, Thanos then destroys the Infinity Stones. The last thing he does with them is destroy them because he doesn't want to be tempted to use them again. So for Thanos, they were never more than just a means means to an end. end. Uh, And then, of course, the plot of Endgame is about all of the rigmarole they have to go through to get them back in different time periods which is a great fun. Uh, but in, then as we get to the very end of the story, they, we recontextualize the Infinity Stones with Tony's sacrifice at the very end. When he snaps his fingers, we know that that's going to kill Tony. At the ver- in the middle of the first Avengers movie, Captain America says to Tony, you're not the one that's going to make the sacrifice play. You're not the one that's going to dive on the grenade. But then at the end of Endgame, Tony is exactly that character. And so we see the, the growth of Iron Man from this sort of hedonistic individualist arms dealer all the way through 23 movies. He's in a lot of them. 
till we get to the point of him making the sacrifice play. Uh, and um, even though he loves his daughter 3000, he's still going to save the world uh, in that moment and be that hero. And I think that that shows the, the growth of the character it uses those, these six different MacGuffins all put together and we see the growth of, of, of uh, Iron Man. And so what he's chasing in his life in Endgame is the security for his family. But then in the end, he realizes that his own sacrifice is going to um, ensure the security for everybody. Um, and hopefully someday, you know, his daughter will understand, you know, what her father did. For those of you who don't have Harry Potter book one memorized, here's a brief recap of chapters four and five. Chapter four, the keeper of the keys. Midnight, a storm rages as the Dursleys and Harry Potter hunker down in a shack on a rock out to sea. Harry is now 11 years old, an auspicious age, as he will soon find out. The door to the shack smashes inward, revealing Rubius Hagrid, a giant of a man with wild hair and a coat stuffed with all sorts of things. Hagrid invites himself in and presents Harry with a squashed birthday cake and a letter, the latter of which, after he discovers that the Dursleys have been keeping the letters from reaching Harry's hands. The letter is an invitation to study at the prestigious Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry under the direction of Headmaster Albus Dumbledore. Harry is a wizard, and a thumping good one too, Hagrid reckons. The Dursleys knew that they have kept secret the fact that Harry's parents were a witch and wizard, and that Harry is part of a whole other world hidden from the sight of muggles. Hagrid gives the Dursleys a piece of his mind. Uncle Vernon says that under no circumstances will he pay for Harry to learn a lot of nonsense. Hagrid tells Dursley to shut it. Harry's got his own source of funding, after all. Harry thought his parents died in a car crash, but now the truth comes out. Hagrid screws up his courage and says Voldemort's name. It was he who killed Lily and James Potter and tried to kill Harry, too. But instead, Voldemort disappeared on that fateful night about 10 years ago, and he hasn't been seen since. That's why Harry is famous in the wizarding world. But the details of that night in question are shrouded in mystery. Harry thinks all this is a big mistake. How could he possibly be a wizard and a famous one at that? But Hagrid assures him that everything he says is true. Chapter 5, Diagon Alley. Harry wakes the next morning, sure that it was all a dream, but the half-giant of a man is snoring away on the collapsed couch. An owl comes with a morning paper, and Hagrid begins teaching Harry about the ways of the wizarding world. Owls deliver post, goblins are on the bank, and the Ministry of Magic is messing things up as usual. Hagrid and Harry leave the Dursleys on the rock out to sea and hop a train to London. That's where they'll buy everything on Harry's school list, which came with his letter. As Harry walks through the London streets, he marvels how there could possibly be another world hidden behind, above, and within the one he knows. They arrive at the Leaky Cauldron, where everyone wants to shake Harry's hand. He's famous, remember? He even meets one of his Hogwarts teachers, Professor Quirrell, who stammers his way through an introduction. He teaches defense against the dark arts? Give me a break. Harry asks Hagrid about him when they've moved on. Oh, says Hagrid. Quirrell's brilliant when it comes to the books, but then he went off to the Black Forest to get some hands-on experience and was never the same again. Hagrid ushers Harry to Diagon Alley, a hidden street filled with magical shops and shoppers. Harry doesn't know where to look. Everything is so new, so weird. 
They stop first at Gringotts, the wizard bank, where Griphook the goblin brings them first to Harry's vault. Turns out Harry's parents left him a modest fortune, so he'll be set for school then. With that worry out of the way, they stop by one more vault, Vault 713, where Hagrid picks up a small grubby package for delivery to Hogwarts. It's all hush-hush. Surely that won't come up later, will it? Next, Harry heads to get his robes, and he meets another boy about to start at Hogwarts. A boy with quite the superiority complex is getting fitted next to him, and the boy won't shut up about his father and the travesty of first years not allowed racing brooms, and, by the way, your parents are our kind, right? They're dead, but they were a witch and a wizard, if that's what you mean, says Harry, who is ready for the conversation to be over, like, now. Hagrid picks up Harry from the clothing store and buys him an ice cream. But Harry is a bit down. There's just so much he doesn't know about the sport Quidditch, about the Hogwarts houses. Slytherin's the house to avoid, opines Hagrid. There wasn't a witch or wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin house. They finish buying Harry's school supplies, ending with the wand store. Mr. Ollivander is a bit odd, maybe even creepy, but he sure knows his stuff. And he remembers every detail of every wand he's ever sold. He tries Harry out on wand after wand until he decides to try... Hmm, yes, this is the one. Holly and Phoenix Feather, 11 inches, nice and supple. This wand chooses Harry, but Mr. Ollivander is muttering to himself, curious, curious. The phoenix that gave the tail feather to Harry's wand gave only one other feather, and it resides in the wand that gave Harry his scar. Cue ominous music. With his shopping done, Harry heads back to Privet Drive for the long month of August. September 1st can't come soon enough. So if we talked last time about what is normal, we're starting off the book firmly in Vernon Dursley's perspective of what is normal. And spoiler alert, his view of normal is pretty boring. What I like about chapters four and five is that they form a bridge between his version of normal and what will soon become Harry's version of normal with the introduction of Hagrid, his first, the first character he meets from the magical world. And eventually it ends with his own introduction into Diagon Alley, the place where he will buy his wand, which becomes his ticket in to Hogwarts and all that it, all that lies within. And it's interesting that at the very end of chapter five, he has to go back to Privet Jive for a month. I love these chapters because it's, you get to see the wizarding world really come alive for the first time. As the what quote unquote real world starts to fade for Harry. He's really questioning like, how is this real? How is this actually happening? Is this all a dream? At the beginning of chapter uh, five, he's waking up and going, oh, ah, no, stay, stay asleep. I, I wanted it to all be okay. And then he wakes up and realizes that it actually happened. And he feels that balloon of excitement growing. I wonder if there is a parallel here to... Uh, you know, the, the biblical idea of call, uh, where the first Jesus calls his first disciples and they start to follow him. And then as he speaks to them and brings them into his vision of the reign of God, do they start seeing a whole nother world that is there and has always been there, but it's beneath and behind and above the world that they've always looked at. And I've always loved that as a parallel to Harry Potter starting to open up into the magical world. Well, that it's, it's a totally different way of viewing things. And yet what's different about that in Harry Potter is that a lot of the things in the wizarding world are the same. Her Hagrid's reading the newspaper and saying, oh, the government's messing about as normal. Like that's something that Vernon would do at mm -hmm. breakfast. It's very relatable. Mm -hmm. 
but and they're you know, they're going shopping for school supplies, something that is also something a young person would do. But there's this whole extra layer of identity layered on top of it. He's seeing his true home, and it's exciting to him. The language is so vibrant in Diagon Alley, mm-hmm. like the the owls and their jewel bright eyes and all of the the things that are for sale. It just sets this eleven year old boy's mind alight. And mine as well. I was very captivated by these chapters as a young person, and still am. Mm, yeah, I, I didn't, hadn't noticed the just the um, amount of description in Diagon Alley, and how the author is using that to really propel us into this other world. I think it's interesting that she does that, though, because when the Sorcerer's Stone is introduced, this MacGuffin for the whole book, it's actually very unremarkable. He's become already become trained. In just the space of a couple pages or a couple hours, he becomes trained to expect something fabulous um, because he would maybe before he would expect a grubby little package. But now that he's seen what's possible, he's thinking, oh, there must be something really cool in here. And then it turns out just to be a boring little package, mm. like something from his previous life. Oh, interesting. And I think we can say the same thing about Professor Quirrell. Mm, he's completely underwhelming completely underwhelming and obviously meant to be to throw us off uh and so the the sorcerer's stone and quirrell are like the two things that harry sees where he kind of dismisses them pretty quickly because they aren't just jumping out at him even though they end up being the two most important things for the story i love one of the things i love about haggard is that people say like they keep killing off harry's father figures you know they kill off Spoiler alert, Sirius, they kill off Dumbledore. Um, but he has Hagrid with him, and he really finds a home in Hagrid's hut throughout the course of the books. And the first introduction we have to Hagrid is of him as evangelist, as telling him who he is and his identity. That's important. But he also shows very real human care for him by bringing him a birthday cake, his first ever, and cooking him some sausages and tea. Uh, and he often will find that warmth, that connection, that human relationship over food with, ha- at, with Hagrid at Hogwarts, even if the food is often in- inedible. And it's interesting, we talk about Hagrid being uh, an evangelist for mm. Harry, bringing him the good news of him being a wizard. I'm curious if Harry would have been able to receive it from somebody who wasn't displaying that level of hospitality. You mean if like McGonagall just showed up and handed him a letter and said, we expect to see you at the platform? Yeah, on what, September 1st? Like, what would, would that look like? Would, yeah, would that have been had the same type of resonance that Hagrid has? Because Hagrid is so full of life and, and obviously cares about Harry and is the first person in Harry's memory who does care for him. Mm-hmm. He's intimidating, but not cold, which I think is important, um, that he's able to relate to him, kind of sit down and eat with him. That's a very connecting experience that we we as humans all share. And if it had been more formal, uh, more procedural, I wonder, I don't think it would have resonated as much. Instead, he gets the sense of, in Hagrid, he's feeling like he could be welcomed, he could be related to on a very basic level that he in his neglected childhood hasn't had a chance to experience yet. I wonder if he had just actually gotten that first letter and opened it, if he would have just dismissed it as somebody playing a practical joke on him. But because he gets the letter from Haggard himself in the end, perhaps Dursley was doing him a favor by forcing this guy to come actually deliver it, hand deliver it. Yeah, and he gets to see little hints of what the magic that's possible, like the fact that the letter's arrived in, you know, a dozen eggs, for example. 
kind of warms him up to maybe be more accepting of when Hagrid does show up. And he's an obviously a magical person. He's so huge. With Hagrid, one, one other theme I noticed in this, um, we accidentally or sort of uh, as a byproduct of meeting anyone from the Wizarding World, we also get a view into their prejudices and their assumptions that they have. You had mentioned something about blood purity in your notes. When Harry, when Hagrid mentions that Harry will be a thumping good wizard uh, with a mom and dad like yours, what else would you be? It's this notion that your lineage, your blood lineage matters. And even though Lily Evans was muggle-born, you know, uh, you still Hagrid sees that Harry is coming from from good stock, as it were. Right which I think is just a little bit uncomfortable. It is, especially from someone who has faced so much prejudice for his own lineage, just being a half giant. Um, I just think it goes to show how he might not consciously espouse that view that blood matters, but because he's been raised in this society that does in some ways value blood purity, he subconsciously comes out with statements that show that he does in fact believe that. It's kind of like, if you're raised as a white person in America, you are programmed to be a racist, whether or not you would consciously say that we all have unconscious attitudes of racism um, because this is the, the water in which we swim. I kind of feel like it's a good analog for the blood purity debate in Harry Potter. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. And when we talk about what, what our biases are, all biases are unexamined because once you start examining them, you're able to hopefully start shedding them. Um, or at least changing them or nuancing them in different ways so that they have less control over you. And even people who, uh, like you said, wouldn't espouse a particular viewpoint doesn't mean that that viewpoint isn't somehow infecting them. Um, in the real world with racism and other forms of injustice and in the Harry Potter and the Wizarding world, we definitely see it with the blood purity thing. Um, and when we meet Draco, uh, we don't have his name yet, but when we meet Draco in chapter five, he immediately goes to, wait, who are your parents? The little stinker wants to know your whole pedigree. Because his father is a big deal. Yes, you, my father will hear about this. Draco also introduces the idea of house prejudice, which I think becomes an important theme, especially later on in the books with the sorting hat preaching unity of the houses. Mm -hmm. um, Draco's the first one to kind of say like, if I was a Hufflepuff, I think I'd leave. Mm. Or that he would be a Slytherin because his whole family has been in Slytherin. Again, this idea that your family matters in who you are. It's also, it matters in who you are and also in that soup that you swam in or that water that you, you swam in. Draco is parroting the sins of his parents. That's right. By talking the way his dad would talk, Draco, who doesn't really know any better at this point, is showing the worldview with which he was brought up. Yeah, you know he didn't come up with those with that type of thought alone. He's not raised in a vacuum. He's hearing it at home. Whereas somebody like Harry is actually kind of a tabula rasa for the wizarding world. He has no idea about any of the prejudices or the biases that exist in the wizarding world. He only knows the ones from the real world, from the the, the muggle world. That's right. And already he's a, he's picking up that Hufflepuff hate, which I just think is sad. <laughs> my own personal bias against the no, but notice that Hagrid doesn't say yeah I was a Hufflepuff no he says they're a loaded everyone thinks they're a loaded duffers 
what a shame. They're the best house. I mean, I mean, I guess there is there is the concept of internalized uh, oppression. So Hufflepuffs hear that they're bad, all that, that they're just duffers all the time. So they start thinking that they're duffers. And even nice Gryffindors will think that they're duffers. Sad. Yeah, but Gryffindors are all tools. I know. I'm a Gryffindor and I'm a, you know, so I can say that. <laughs> so bold. I can say that Gryffindors are tools because I'm a Gryffindor. Good. I can just say that from the moment I, no, no one needs to know my Hufflepuff backstory. Back to Diagon Alley. Um, I think it's really cool how uh, it's possible that Hagrid and Harry are really the only ones on the street who can see the leaky cauldron. Mm. Uh, we know from later on with Grimald Place that there are literally buildings that muggles can't see. I wonder though, is the Leaky Cauldron just a building they can't see or that they just ignore because it's just so grubby? And it makes me remember the lyrics from U2's song, All That You Can't Leave Behind, where they talk about a place that has to be believed to be seen. They flip-flop oh. that, that concept of seeing is believing. Mm-hmm. I think they're talking about heaven in the song, uh, but they're talking about a place that has to be believed to be seen. So as Harry is entering the wizarding world, all of a sudden he's seeing so much more of what's really there. And this whole theme of like, it's right there under underground. I think he reflects it. The fact that Grin, uh, Gringotts is just underneath London. There's all these piles of wizarding gold. He may have walked on streets over it at some point and never known he was coming so close to essentially his destiny. Hmm. Not that his destiny is money, but it symbolizes his identity and his relationship with his family. Uh, so yeah, let's get to the wand. We'll finish up our discussion talking about Harry's wand. The wand takes on such... The wand might be a bit of a MacGuffin because it starts off, it's a wand, it's a tool, it's a way of channeling your magic, your innate magic. But it becomes almost a main character in its own right. The search for the wand that Harry undergoes at Ollivander's shows that he is special. The type of wood and the filling, not the filling, the core, it's not a pie, it's a wand, <laughs> uh, show that he is a different type of person. So the, the Hollywood says that, um, according to Pottermore, shows it's particularly chosen for someone who's engaged in some sort of dangerous or spiritual quest. And then the Phoenix Core, aside from having that connection with Fox and with Voldemort, it says that uh, they, the wands show the most initiative, they're the most attached and independent, and they're also the hardest to tame and persuade. So the fact that Harry gets such, a, such an important relationship with his wand such a long-standing partnership, I think, shows his ability to win loyalty from people and his incredible, like the force of his personality. So I love the scene where he finds his wand um, because there's a sense of like getting it just right. And when you take the time to get it right, you will do extraordinary things. Hmm. So you don't think that it, that the Holly wand went to him specifically because he's a Horcrux and has a part of Voldemort in him that also had the the holly one or the uh, oh that's a good point i don't know i, I not to rain on your parade of oh that that's a great point because like but, but yeah the twin cores with the the fact that he's got a soul piece in him is pretty important i wonder about like olivander's choice to put it in that holly wand though yeah and the, yeah, the wood being yeah because is voldemort's wand holly as well no it's you so can i can i try to blow your mind once about the holly wand Go for it. I, I doubt that J.K. Rowling had this thought in her mind, but when we think of Harry Potter as a Christ-like figure within his sacrifice in book seven and so forth, and mm-hmm. you know, t- 
type of resurrection as he comes back from from the dead um the 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 christmas carol the holly and the ivy comes to my mind um uh, do you know that song yeah the the holly and the ivy when they are both full grown of all the trees that are in the wood the holly bears the crown the rising of the sun and the running of the deer and so forth the holly bears a blossom as white as lily flower mary bore sweet jesus christ to be our dear savior the holly bears a berry as red as any blood and mary bore sweet jesus christ do poor sinners good and so forth <laughs> the holly of the wood of harry's wand is the same wood that is sung of in this song this christmas carol which is a british christmas carol mm -hmm. uh about the, the the wood of the the crown of thorns and so forth uh being holly and I think that's there's a really interesting parallel between Jesus and Harry through the wood of of Harry's wand. That is, and it would I would not put it past her. She was, you know, incredibly influenced by folklore and sort of just British lore in general and mythology. And that could have, you know, sort of a traditional associations you with churchyards and death and Holly perhaps with the cross could also. I would not put it past her, but I also like to be surprised. Yeah, well, and again, being a, a popular English carol, you know, would have been sung at Lessons and Carols at King's College, mm. uh, then she probably would have heard it. And even if it wasn't a conscious edition, it's possible that there's a subconscious connection. Um, of course. The concept of Holly. I just think that's kind of neat. Um, all right. Anything else? I'm just excited to tackle the next section of chapters where we get to Hogwarts finally. We're going to do chapters six and seven for next time. And uh as we close this section of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, just remember what Harry says at the end of chapter five. Everyone thinks I'm special, but I don't know anything about magic at all. How can they expect great things? And Hagrid says, don't worry. Everyone starts at the beginning at Hogwarts. And I love how that's a parallel to the life of faith where somebody might come into a spiritual journey and then see people who have been on a spiritual journey for a long time and think, oh, I don't know. How can I be like you? And then you have to say, no, everybody starts where you are. And sometimes we come back to where you are. And I love that that's where Hagrid brings Harry to at the end of Diagon Alley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash nerdychristians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. That's where, W-H-E-R-E, thewind.com. Check out my fantasy novels, The Storm Curtain and The Halfling Contagion on my website or amazon.com. Carrie doesn't do much on social media, but you can find her right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. And may God, the author of creation, give you wisdom to seek after what is true and meaningful and not just empty plot devices. May all your MacGuffins draw you closer to a life of love and service, remembering that in seeking God, we are coming closer to the very meaning of life itself. And the blessing of God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Harry is now 11 years old and auspicious. Oof, we tried that again. Word. <laughs> Harry is now 11 years old and auspicious. <laughs> Why can't I do auspicious? I'm going to make a list of words Carrie can't say out loud. I also do have a slight list. which do well and auspicious. Auspicious. How I'm about? Change it. Yeah. Auspicious. Okay.